Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 440 with Steve Robbins. I think you'll take this chat with Steve because he is sharing how to do more in less time. And from my emails from y'all, I hear you're into that sort of thing. So you'll learn one, a productivity power tool to help you accomplish almost everything. Two, why and how to break down your learning into micro skills. And three, which micro skills are really worth developing to save you years of time over the course of your working life. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP440. That's EP440. Now, here's Steve's story. Steve Robbins is a serial entrepreneur, top podcaster, and a productivity expert. He's co-founded the early internet success story FTP Software, served as COO of Building Blocks Interactive, and CEO of JobTacto.com, and been an initial team member of 10 startups, including four IPOs and three acquisitions. He currently runs Get It Done groups, which help people make extreme progress on important projects and habits. He was a project manager at Intuit. He serves as a business plan judge for the Harvard Business School Business Plan competition, the MIT 100K competition, and several other competitions. His Get It Done Guy podcast has been downloaded more than 36 million times. He's been interviewed in numerous publications and is the author of It Takes a Lot More Than Attitude to Build a Stellar Organization and to Get It Done Guy's Nine Steps to Work Less and Do More. Steve holds an MBA from the Harvard Business School and a BS in Computer Sciences from MIT. Here is Steve. So thanks to Steve for hanging out with us and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Steve, welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm hoping to learn how to be awesome at my job. Well, I'm thinking that we're both going to do some great learning. I've learned a lot from you with your Get It Done Guy podcast. I remember listening to it in Brent's car. Shout out to Brent. Hey, Brent. And so I think it's going to be a really fun one. And we were already talking about a lot of cool stuff. And we had to push record before we went out of time. But one fun tidbit about you I got to hear about is you grew up in a new age commune. What's this about? I did. My parents were, were hippies, but they came to the scene late and they didn't have the hippie movement to join up to. So my father got involved in some various new age philosophies and we sold our worldly possessions, bought a 23 foot trailer and went bouncing around the country, starting psychic growth centers. A psychic growth center. Yeah. Don't get me started. <laughs> let, let, let me simply say that it turns out that most of America isn't really very open to having you start psychic growth centers. Uh huh. Remember the kids on the other side of the tracks that your parents warned you not to play with? 
Oh, right. That's Steve and company. That was us. <laughs> That's right. So I'm um, just real quick. Is psychic growth center, does that help me grow in my psychic abilities or what happens in a oh, psychic yeah. growth center? Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, also, the, the children of the people who start the psychic growth center become atheists. So that's the other oh. thing that happens oh. in, in a psychic growth center. It makes a real impression on, on you when you grow up. Actually, we switched religions every couple of years. My father was into lots of different things. And mm. as a result... By the time I was 18, I had been through four or five different belief systems. And once you're through a certain number of belief systems, you start to say, you know, all of these are just belief systems. The more interesting part of your question, though, isn't what's it like growing up in a psychic growth center. It's what's it like having grown up in a psychic growth center. Okay. Because what it does when you're the kid on the other side of the tracks is you don't take the same things for granted that everyone else does. So for me, the most interesting part about having a non-standard background is that I question things that everyone else simply take for granted. And mm -hmm. on one hand, this is very powerful. It means that there's a lot of problems that I can solve that other people can't because I ask different questions than they do. And sometimes the questions I ask are the ones that will lead to the solution. On the other hand, there are some real problems with this because there are plenty of places in life where you really need to understand how the standard people think. And you really need to understand what will be societally oh, acceptable yeah. and what will not. Let me give you a hint. You do not want to discover behaviorally that wearing a loincloth to school is a bad idea. <laughs> Some people know that instinctively. Others of us had to learn it. <laughs> That's maybe the pulled quote we're going to feature from this interview, Steve, <laughs> is, is that tidbit right there. Mm. And well... Yeah, that's. I think we're two peas in a pod in that way. Not the loincloth specifically, but uh, the the asking questions that don't others don't seem to ask because I do it. And what I find is to be the downside is it's folks are just not prepared or equipped for it, and so it just slows everything down. It's like, wait a minute, what do you want? I don't even know how to address that for you. Maybe talk to someone else because it's sort of like, you know, customer service systems or businesses, you know, they're set up to do a few things well and efficiently and by the millions at scale. And so when you throw these little monkey wrenches in there, it just slows everything down and it gets inconvenient for everybody, it seems. Oh, yeah. And in fact, one of the things I was thinking about before this call, because I knew you were going to ask me that question. One of the things I was thinking about was one of the perspectives that I have, despite the fact that I have a fairly mainstream life in many regards, but I'm always amazed at the fact that we live in the most materially rich society in all of human history, by a wide, wide measure, the most productive in terms of labor hours needed to produce a particular result. And yet we have such an extraordinarily narrow range of activities and things that we do and lifestyles that we have. And it boggles my mind that we have the resources to give ourselves as a race lots of leisure time, lots of ability to pursue meaning, the resources to try out and experiment with different governmental types, with different ways of being, with different work weeks. And yet we create very narrow boxes, live inside them, and then forget that we're the ones who created the boxes. That's a big question. <laughs> I have to say, yes, that may topic. be bigger than we're supposed to be talking about today. I, I think we were talking about getting things done or something similar. 
Well, and I guess my first thought there is, I guess it has to do with like the fear of the unknown or, or, or risk or uncertainty and, and how maybe relatively few people want to, to go down that pathway. But well, yeah, I'm going to be chewing on that one as well. Thank you, Steve. I, I want to hear, yes, I do want to hear about getting things done. And, and maybe, so you got an interesting sort of start in terms of a new age commune and traveling, but, but then you did get some credentials that folks tend to kind of think are more normal and desirable, you know, hey, MIT computer science bachelors, MBA from Harvard Business School, good stuff. So how did you become branded and adopt the moniker of the get it done guy? Oh, that was never supposed to be the case. Hmm. I started the get it done guy in 2007 because I was working doing one-on-one executive coaching and strategy consulting, which is the main thing that I've done through most of my career. And I was really yearning for a creative outlet because, frankly, one of the fascinating things about the business world is the business world is really very anti-creative. It uses the principles of uniformity to grow organizations, and the uniformity exists in terms of people and behavior. Have you ever ever noticed when someone says that you should dress professionally or act professionally, what they mean is you should restrict your behavior to the narrowest possible window of things, Hmm. right? Those are not expansive. When someone says act professional, what they do not mean is be creative, be wild, be innovative, think outside the box. What they mean is, oh my gosh, you're wearing a three-button vest instead of a two-button vest. Uh I can't be seen in public with you. (laughs) (laughs) So, I wanted a creative outlet, and I had started a little podcast called Business Explained, and I had produced about 10 episodes for it, and then I experienced Grammar Girl, and Grammar Girl taught grammar, but it was fun, and it was interesting to listen to, and she had an attitude, and she had characters, and oh my gosh, Grammar Girl was and is awesome. So I wrote her a fan letter, and I said, if you would ever like a business podcaster, I would love to be your business podcaster, because she had a little network called the Quick and Dirty Tips Network, and... Just out of sheer coincidence, my letter got to her right after she had sold the network to Macmillan Publishing, and they were having a meeting to decide who should their next podcaster be. And my letter came in at the right time. I auditioned for the part. I got it. And they let me choose the topic. I chose personal productivity, mainly because I thought it would be fun. Mm -hmm. I thought I could do a lot more with that in terms of humor than with corporate strategy. And I was right, as it turns out. Became the get it done guy, and the rest, as they say, is history. Well, actually, not quite. What happened is, for years, I didn't do anything with it professionally. And my branding in the marketplace was very much around strategy and entrepreneurship and high-growth companies and how to be a good leader and all that stuff. And then about a year ago, I decided I had this podcast and I had a following, and why not start doing things that were more productivity-oriented and just see if it flies. Yeah, well, well, one thing that I'm quite intrigued by are the get it done groups. I'm a huge fan of accountability, and I'm intrigued as to what exactly is this? Well, so get it done groups are, they're accountability groups. And when I looked at the different offerings out there, first of all, I've been an executive coach for about many, many years by the time I developed these. And one of the things that I had noticed is that at the end of the day, Coaches are trained to help people develop their innate capabilities, help people get that strength, that motivation, that proactiveness. And boy, is that a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And one day I had a CEO client, because I mainly work with executives, and I had a CEO client who had had a homework assignment. I don't even remember what it was at this point. It was something simple, like write a letter firing someone. It was something that was emotionally difficult, but Uh it it was technically very easy. 
And three weeks in a row, he hadn't done it. And so this time, we started our coaching session, and I said, how did the letter go? And he said, I haven't sent it yet. And instead of trying to get to the root of his blocks, and instead of trying to deeply trigger his motivation by connecting it to his highest values and his purpose and his why, (laughs) I said, dude, I happen to know for a fact that you have one hour currently available on Uh the calendar because that was the hour that we were supposed to be talking. (laughs) So guess what? We now have 57 minutes left. We're going to hang up the phone. I will talk to you in 23 minutes at half past the hour, and we will review the first draft of the letter. Bye. Hung up the Mm -hmm. phone. When we met at half past, he had the first draft done. And in that moment, I started to realize, wait a minute, human beings are social creatures. We are hardwired to take our commitments to other people more seriously than we take our commitments to ourselves. And if that's the case, why are we bothering with all of this deep psychology bull pucky and all of this, oh, we must find your deep inner why? Look, just you need to get your taxes done. Great. Get them out. I'll watch. Fabulous. Now that you have them out, 10 more minutes, you start working and, you know, 10 minutes, I'll call back in 10 minutes to check up on how it's going. And then real time, of course, if someone is getting stalled, you can at that moment diagnose why they're getting stalled and work with it as opposed to checking back a week later and saying, oh, why didn't you do your thing and having them try to remember what was going through their head at the time and so on. So what I recognized is that there are a couple of things. Number one, the hammer that seems to work for almost everything is accountability. Number two, people get lost in different ways. They get lost sometimes in their moment-to-moment ability to focus, which technology is making far, far worse. They get lost in their ability to concentrate on one project out of a portfolio of projects long enough to make progress. And so I said there are three timeframes we can operate on. Let's operate on the level of the quarter, 12 weeks, the level of the day, and the level of the hour. And what Get It Done groups do is they provide accountability on all three levels. We have a couple days a week where we meet hourly, and every hour we actually commit to doing things. Those are the days when you do that stuff that otherwise you would procrastinate the heck out of and that you just don't want to do, and we all just get together and do it together. Mm -hmm. And it works really well. The daily accountability buddies is what we call them. The daily accountability buddy is a thing where people divide up into groups of two or three, and they meet every day, a very short meeting like five to 10 minutes, and they go through and make sure that they're making progress on all of the things that they need to be accountable for, which will add up to where they want to go in the 12-week period. And then over the course of 12 weeks, if we've designed the daily check-ins right, they will get most of the way or all of the way or well past their 12-week goal. And people have used Get It Done groups to write a book. In fact, she finished the last word of it this last Sunday, and several members of the group were on a Zoom call with her as she was writing those last two sentences. Unfortunately, <laughs> I didn't find out about it until about 20 minutes later, but I would have been there too. I'm just imagining like like one of them has a violin and like, it's like a you know a very orchestral celebratory uh, moment. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah. Do, well, do, do, do. <laughs> we, had, we had been there with her for almost yeah. the whole thing. I mean, it was amazing. There's another person who qualified for professional degrees. He had been trying for many, many years and just hadn't sat down to do all the work, sat down and did all the work. We had somebody else who had multiple businesses that she had developed over the years and she wanted to merge them all and and create unified branding and put them all under one website. She did that. We have Mm -hmm. just a whole variety of things. So get it done groups are groups where you get it done. And the, you know, what they're one of the people they're especially good for is people who are self-employed because when you're self-employed, you don't have any external person who can stop and say, now, wait a minute, you said that doing your marketing was important to you, but for the last four days, you haven't done any what's up. 
Mm-hmm. Are you, do you want to give up on that? Or do you want to do it, but now we have to make some tweaks to how you're doing your day because empirically you need some sort of tweaks in order to be making the progress you want to be making. And they work amazingly well. I've actually been quite surprised. I wasn't thinking that they were going to work. I mean, I thought they would be effective, but in fact, the effect that they've had, I think is almost out of proportion with how simple they, well, it's way out of proportion with how simple they are, but it's way out of proportion with what I thought. I thought they'd be useful and they've been life-changing for some people, like seriously life-changing. That's so cool. How big is a group? We do it as a cohort enters every month or every couple of months. And then everyone who is currently an active member all works together. So, so we, it could be dozens. It could be. Uh, at the moment, uh, we've never had more than 15 people enrolled at any given moment, uh, which is a whole other story, uh, having to do with customer acquisition versus customer retention. But well, what we found is that really, I've already figured out how to scale it to whatever point is needed. For like for one of the, our hourly do-it days, we usually have between four and seven or eight people show up for that. Mm-hmm. That's when we check in every single hour. We have a community call once a week and every week we'll get uh, you know anywhere from five to 12 people on that. So it depends. All of the elements of it are optional except for the daily check-ins because part of the whole idea is we're all busy people and any productivity system that takes enough time that it impacts the way that you work is not a productivity system. You need mm-hmm. productivity systems that mesh with what you're doing so you don't have to feel like you must do every single thing. You do just enough and just the pieces that will give you the results that you want. That's cool. Awesome. Well, I'm a huge fan of accountability. It's come up before. I, I wrote a book about accountability groups back in the day, and it was had a big impact on me. So so that's huge. Well, specifically, for I thought we'd be talking today about uh, micro skills for sharpening focus and working smarter. That's one of your key areas of expertise and something that uh, we dig here. Sounds like uh, one a key skill is just, you know, entrusting others and uh, sharing and having some accountability. Could you maybe define for us the, the term micro skill, first of all? Yes. Just as people think at different time frames, as I mentioned a moment ago, people think at different levels when they think of skills, different, I'll call it a chunk size. Sometimes someone will say things like, you need to learn to focus, as if focus mm-hmm. is itself a single skill. Well, it's not. Focus is comprised of a lot of little skills. Focus is the ability to identify what you're working on. If you don't identify what you're working on, you won't do it because Mm -hmm. you don't know what to be focusing on. It's the ability to block out or eliminate in advance external distractions. It's the ability to either eliminate or notice when you have an internal distraction and pull yourself back on task. It's Mm -hmm. the ability to know when you're done, etc. So there are actually tiny chunks of skills that make up this word that we use as a larger level skill. And to me, a micro skill is one of the component skills that makes up what we would normally call a skill, but which in fact is really the accumulation of lots and lots of things. And I will give you a slight spoiler. This is going to relate to our conversation about neurolinguistic programming later mm-hmm. in this, because this is, it's my NLP informed brain that has resulted in me paying a lot of attention to micro skills. For example, we have two people in the current Get It Done group who really, really, really aren't doing enough prospecting. And they were like, okay, I keep falling down on my prospecting progress, so let's do a day that's just prospecting. And I talked to the two of them individually. And I said, so tell me about your prospecting process. Now, what I'm actually listening for here is, are they both getting screwed up the same way? 
Or is there a difference? Because if I'm going to be designing a day to work with them, I want to make sure that whatever I do during that day actually hits the causes of where they're getting stalled. It turns out they were getting stalled in different places. With one person, it was identifying where to find prospects. For the other person, it was actually picking up the phone and writing an email to reach out to the prospect. And then there's a bunch of other skills too, like follow-up, et cetera, that you know, we could get into at a different time. But essentially, there are micro skills that make up the skill of prospecting. And one of them is identifying prospect sources. Uh, the next one is identifying prospects from those sources. It's not enough to identify the source. You actually have to go to the source and get the prospects. Then you have to craft a message. Then you have to get that message out to them, which may involve doing research as to how each prospect likes to receive information, or it may involve sending out an email blast, or it may involve doing a bunch of phone calls, but whatever. You actually have to then take the action to get the prospecting out. And generally, when people say, oh, you need to do more prospecting, they largely just mean this big chunk thing. And to me, mm -hmm. a micro skill is one of the smaller chunk things that people don't pay as much attention to, but which often are where people really get tripped up. Yeah, I really dig that because, you know, these words, I'm right with you, prospecting, focusing really are huge. Like there's, so it's so funny. I'm just thinking about my wife. We got stuck for a little while because she's like, we need to baby proof this home. It's like, well, I don't know what all that means. <laughs> I'm sure there are many steps and components and devices and thingies that, that are built up when it comes to, to baby proofing. And I don't really quite know where to start. So we got stuck for a good while, actually, until I just Googled and I found a professional baby proofer <laughs> to, who made a lot of things happen for us. So that was nice because it was a one-time thing as opposed to, you know, baby proofing as a lifestyle, you know, I guess <laughs> yes. uh, installing new stuff every week. Is that a skill I, I need? And you know, there are people who do that. I'm sure. Yeah. You could find a new way the kid can hurt himself <laughs> without trouble, but I, I dig it because often, you know, that sort of, I don't know, deflates the energy or makes it less actionable when it's, you know, big and vague as opposed to, now what I'm talking about is getting on the phone again and again and again, or what I'm talking about is figuring out where the heck I can get a bunch of names. Th those are different problems that have different actions and solutions. Correct. And so that's what a micro skill is. A micro skill is understanding the skills that make up the thing you're trying to do. And then to some degree, even more importantly, is to identify which skills are missing and then figure out how to intervene. Because it's not the case that all interventions are created equal or that all problems are the same problem. Okay, cool. So then when we're talking about those goals of, of sharpening focus and working smarter, what are some of the most potent micro skills that give you a good return on your investment, a big bang for the buck in investing to develop them? Well, I'll tell you my favorites because they're not super popular. <laughs> Speed reading and touch typing. Oh, there you go. Now, now touch typing, I'm already, I'm right with you. I, I am sold Okay, go ahead. You could sell a little bit more, but I'm already with you. Now, the speed reading, though, yeah, I've, I've heard folks who are like, oh, speed reading, it's a scam. You know, you really can't, blah, blah, blah. So l lay it on us with some evidence. What's what's real and possible with speed reading versus what's hype and fluff? Okay, well, you want me to address the touch typing or the speed reading first? Let's do speed reading first. All right, speed reading. I don't know what's real and what isn't. All that I know is that I push myself to read faster and faster, but I never go so fast that I don't have comprehension. I know that some speed reading systems say push yourself so fast 
that you can barely comprehend. And then when you slow down, you'll be able to go much faster. And I've actually done that particular exercise a few times. Uh, I'm not a fan of things like photo reading, where you okay. supposedly can digest an entire book by just by flipping the pages quickly. Apparently, there are people who can do that. I'm not convinced that that is the level of useful skill because the context where most people do reading these days is on a screen. Right. So what you need to be able to do is scan a screen and really get the meat of the information. The problem is most people skim and skimming is not the same as reading. Okay. With skimming, you get a superficial understanding, maybe if it's a well-written article or well-written post. Mm -hmm. Of course, in this day of pay for clicks, not pay for quality content, there's an awful lot of stuff out there that's extremely poorly written. Oh, don't get me started on the sloppy junk out there. Yeah. And the agencies that enable it. Don't, okay. well, just leave that there. We're just going to leave that there. What, what happens <laughs> is there are, in a, for a well-written piece of writing, for example, you can scan the headlines the headers and the subheads, right. you can scan the topic, topic sentences. sentences and things, and you really will get an idea of what the article is about, what the argument is, and then you can go back to the pieces you want more information about and read it more deeply. That just doesn't apply to an awful lot of things on the web because yeah. most people don't know how to write, or they don't take the time, or they can't afford to take the time because they're being paid so little that they have to grind out 10 articles oh, yeah. in the space that exactly. they would have had to do once. I, I signed up for one of those uh just for funsies to take a look around. And I was like, holy crap, I would have to be cranking almost as fast as I can type for like a third of that hour to eke out minimum wage here. And you're hiring U.S. labor? I, what? So, okay, that's a whole rant we could go on, but I want to hear... We, we have an awful lot of rants that we can go <laughs> yeah, on. Yes, we got to get our own... You and me, the the Steve and Pete podcast, we'll get a rant all day long. But, okay, so speed reading, you push yourself to read faster, and then and that yields some results. So how might we go about learning how to read faster? What's, what are sort of the, the practices of developing that micro skill? You know, the thing that I would do for that, and I literally just took a speed reading course, but the exercise that I thought was the most useful with the speed reading course was the one that I mentioned a minute ago. Take a book or something that you want to read. Give yourself, first read a paragraph, read not a paragraph, read a chapter at normal speed, time how long that takes you, and then read the next chapter, giving yourself half that time. And then the chapter after that, half that time. And just push yourself to get successively faster and faster and faster until you're going so fast that, you, that it's very clear you're not absorbing very much. Mm -hmm. But then when you downshift, you will downshift to a much faster rate than you started with. All right. So now we've, I've heard the term because I've dabbled in reading about speed reading before, and I've heard the term subvocalize, which yes. I understand to mean inside my mind, inside my brain, I am saying each word to myself. So if I'm looking at your bio, I might say inside my brain, but not out loud with my lips, it would say, Stever holds an MBA from the Harvard Business School and a BS in computer sciences. So are you pushing past the subvocalization speed or not? I don't think that I am personally. Okay. I think I, what I've heard is the maximum speed you can get to while you still subvocalize is about, I think, 1,500 words a minute or something like that. Oh, well, that's still lovely. That's maybe 5x normal, right? Right. And I can, I can get up to that, I think. I can, when I'm really going, I can get up, assuming that it's not something that requires lots and lots of, I have to stop every sentence and digest it. Oh, that's fine. Oh, that's reassuring. But I don't think I ever really quite break the subvocalization barrier. I think that for the most part, well, you know what? Now that I'm saying that, that isn't true. When I took the speed reading course, I always subvocalized. Now that I think about it, this is a conversation that I've had with friends before. I'm at the point where I see a sentence and I know what the sentence means. 
And there's a sense that somewhere I might be subvocalizing a little bit, but it happens faster than I could possibly talk it. So if mm-hmm. it's subvocalizing, it's subvocalizing it two or three or four times what my external talking speed is. Okay, cool. Well, well, so that's reassuring then. I always thought of that as some kind of crazy transcendental, the Matrix Neo type experience. <laughs> it's like, whoa, I've entered a new plane of information processing, which is unfelt ever before. So, okay, cool. So that's just all you got to do is push yourself to read about twice as fast as before, and then twice as fast as that, and then maybe twice as fast again. And then once you're reaching the, i clearly not absorbing anything level, you back it off a little bit, and then holy smokes, you, you find that you are able to maybe read two, three, four, five times as quickly with it, just as much retention. Is that accurate? Yeah. I'll tell you, it works awesome. in both directions, too. It also works in the direction of output. When you're doing public speaking, I was just helping a friend of mine prepare for an important presentation he has to give. And I would love to say that I invented this exercise. I did not. This was taught to me by my very first business mentor years and years ago, back right after I had graduated, you know, at least six or seven years ago. All right, right. And he had me give a presentation at the, my normal speed. And the presentation took about 40 minutes. And he said, great, now you have 20 minutes. Give me the presentation again. Oh, You'll nice. You'll have to decide what to leave out. Yes. And then do it in 10 minutes, and then do it in five minutes, and then do it in two minutes, and then do it in one minute. And when you push it down to one minute, it, and especially when you do it in that order, because each time your brain has to learn how to filter through and decide what's important and what isn't. When you get it down to one minute or 30 seconds, the only thing you can say is the main points. You can't give right. examples. You can't give supporting evidence. You can say... <laughs> Profits down. We're scared. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's it. But then what happens is when you then expand that back out to 40 minutes, you have your brain has gone through the process of compacting everything down and putting it into the chunks that make sense with you. So on the fly, you can dynamically expand and contract portions of it to be able to, mm. to adjust to any length. And if you make it too short, then you say, now we have room for Q&A. And if anyone asks about the pieces that you left out because you misjudged the time, well, they're in your brain because you've already been through this presentation this many times and packaged all the information up nicely for yourself. So then all of that preparation simply serves to make you look like a genius and uber prepared during the Q&A portion. That's cool. We, we had a guest who wrote the book Brief, and, and that was good stuff and recommend a similar exercise, which is so handy. So, okay. That's how speed reading can go down. Also applies to presentations. His name is Joe McCormick for the record, the author of brief. So now let's talk a little bit about uh, the touch typing. I understand that the average typing speed in the United States is 41 words per minute. I just researched these dorky things (laughs) of my own volition. So you're saying that we got a lot more uh, room to grow on that front. When I was in seventh grade, I took a touch typing course and I took it on a manual typewriter, not an electric, a manual. And at the age of, what's seventh grade, 12 years old? At the age of 12 years old on a manual typewriter, I could consistently test out at 70 words per minute. There you go. If I can do 70 words per minute as a 12-year-old on a manual typewriter, anyone can get at least that fast, if not faster. That's huge. Okay. And so how do we get those skills? You take a touch typing course okay? or you go online and you, I'm sure there are websites because I learned to type the Dvorak layout. I learned from a, a website and from some apps and you know what? It's not sexy. 
Uh-huh. It really isn't. If, if what you want is some magical thing that will teach you to suddenly, boom, get the touch typing skill overnight, that doesn't happen. What you have to do is you have to train all of the common letter combinations. You have to get your fingers used to moving in those combinations. You have to practice it over and over and over, punctuated with appropriate sleep periods so that your brain can consolidate the information. And it may take weeks or months. It took me, it probably... Actually, I don't know if I'm as fast on Dvorak even now after I've been doing it for about 10 years as I was on QWERTY at the time. I mm-hmm. find the big advantage to Dvorak is far less finger strain and finger movement, um, yeah. which, which is, you know, and I'm still pretty darn fast typing Dvorak. But it took, I practiced Dvorak for months before I got up to reasonable typing speeds, but it was completely worth it because in the 10 years or actually it was more because I was already typing Dvorak when I started to get a done guy. I have written roughly 750,000 words of paid content, which I guess makes me a professional writer now that I think about it. That's right. Bling, bling. But part of why I was able to do that is I could type fast enough because it doesn't matter how great your ideas are. It doesn't matter how great you are at composing sentences. If you can only type 20 words a minute, you're not going to be able to write 700,000 words of text because you can't, you just don't have the time to move your fingers that much. You know, it's true. And, and I've played around with all kinds of, of speech to text and dictation tools and software. And it, it's not there yet. Maybe, maybe give it five years, maybe 10 years, but we're not there yet. And so when it comes to keyboarding and typing faster, one of my favorite resources, I'm going to drop this in the show notes is keybr.com, K E Y br.com. They got some cool case studies of folks doubling their typing speed in like five hours of practice over the course of a couple weeks. And and part of their brilliance, I think, is that it starts you, it kind of drills each key in order based upon its um, frequency versus difficulty to type so that you're, they've really kind of leveraged it for you as much as is possible and it's free. So keybr.com is a handy one and um, I'm digging it. So, okay, well, let's, oof, time is flying here. Now, Steve, I want to make sure we get a chance to touch base on, so you are a smart dude and you've got impressive credentials from impressive places and you think clearly about stuff. And I'm so intrigued that you are also a certified master trainer elite of NLP, neurolinguistic programming. Now, NLP has got an interesting reputation. Maybe could you give us a, a feel for, first of all, what is it for those who are, are less familiar? And then can you kind of like with the, the speed reading, tell us what's real, what's exaggerated, and what benefits can we really expect to, to glean from NLP? Sure. So NLP is... It's a set of models for understanding how humans think and how the way they think can be inferred from their language and ways to change the way you think or someone else thinks once you know what that is. I learned about it first because I wanted to learn things. And NLP was originally introduced to me as a technology for being able to sit down and talk with someone who had expertise and understand at a cognitive level, which basically means how are they thinking about the task involved to be able to produce whatever results they produce that constitute expertise, and how can that be expressed in such a way that I can learn it or you can learn it or someone else can learn it? Because, for example, if you're talking to Mozart and you say to Mozart, gee, how do you compose that passage? And Mozart Mozart says, well, the way you compose it is you just play it over and over and you listen really carefully until it sounds right. That's not a useful description. 
if you don't happen to be Mozart and have Mozart's definition of sounding right, then you're not going to produce the kind of music that Mozart can produce. However, if what Mozart says to you is, well, what I do is I make colored pictures in my mind, and every color corresponds to a note. And I notice that when the pictures have a particular type of symmetry, when played as notes, they sound good. Every mm -hmm. step of that is something you could teach someone. Again, maybe not easily. Learning how to, and this is this phenomenon of matching visual things with sounds is called synesthesia. If you want to create a synesthesia such that your colored pictures can be translated into notes, I'm guessing that doing that itself is a skill that if you don't happen to develop it as a child or you're not born with it, that itself is going to take you a while. But assuming that that really is the way Mozart creates music, then if you have those skills, and these are where the micro skills come in, and in this case, the micro skills are being able to make these colored pictures, being able to judge if they're symmetric, being able to make them symmetric if they're not, and being able to translate it back and forth into sound. If you have those skills, then you can produce probably not the identical results to Mozart because he has his own personal history that he's filtering all of this through, but you'll be able to produce things that are in the realm of musical expertise. Now, I made that example up, by the way, mm -hmm. but the idea there is NLP helps you listen to how somebody does what they are talking about that they do and figure out what are the mental steps they're doing to get there. And as I mentioned before, that's really at the heart of so much of what I do because NLP says, given a big chunk skill, like compose a musical piece, what are the tiny chunks that make it up? And the tiny chunks may well be different for different composers, in which case there are many different ways you can learn to compose music. Okay, so so now I like the way you said that, because I think sometimes, as I've seen NLP, neurolinguistic Programming, presented, it's talking about, this is some mind control hypnosis stunt that's going to make you crazy persuasive if you anchor touching your tie when you say something really compelling, you know, like, it's like, I don't know about that. Or you can tell if anyone's lying based upon where their eyeballs move. It's like, I don't know if that is accurate or been validated by any peer-reviewed research. What do you think about these kinds of claims? Depends on the specific claim. The NLP will make you an amazingly, unbelievably persuasive. Uh, NLP does make a set of distinctions which teach you how to understand how someone is thinking and how to package your information in such a way that it fits with the way they think about something. Okay, so that could be a persuasive boost, sure. Right, it can be a persuasive boost. But the information, even if you package the information so somebody receives it the way that they want to receive it. So let me give you an example. Let's say that I am someone who's a visual thinker, and I understand long-term trends by visualizing a graph and noting if the graph goes up or down. So if someone mm -hmm. says to me, oh, unemployment is falling, I actually picture a graph that has a line that goes from the upper left down to the lower right, and yeah. that's my mental representation of what the sentence means, unemployment is falling. Mm -hmm. If you know that that is how I represent things, and you want to communicate the information that consumer happiness is rising, or maybe the consumer happiness is, is all over the map, then if you simply show me a picture that has this line going up and down and left and right and all over the place and say, this is consumer confidence, I don't have to do any work to understand that because that matches with the way that I understand things. However, if you show that exact same map to somebody who understands things by visualizing a column of numbers, yeah. not a graph, they're going to look at that graph and go, I don't know what the heck that is. I can't make any sense out of it mm -hmm. because because their mental representation is not 
making graphs with lines in them. So what that means is for a given person, if you understand how they take in and process and understand information, you can package whatever case you're trying to make so that it's, it fits their type of information so they don't have to work to understand it. However, just because they don't have to work to understand it doesn't mean they'll immediately take it in. It just yeah. means that they won't reject it because they, it doesn't make sense to them. They'll re, they may okay. re, it may make sense to them, but then they may reject it because it, it doesn't make good sense. All right. Uh, fair enough. And how about these eyeball directions indicating if someone's lying? So that's interesting. The actual NLP model does not say that eyeball directions indicate if someone's lying. In fact, if you read the books, they explicitly say that's not what they do because that's okay. one of the common ways people misinterpret them. What the eyeball directions are claimed to do, and I, this is something that drives me nuts because because of the way this is phrased, it's one of the easiest things to quote unquote test. And I put that in quotes because so far I have yet to see any test that actually does a good job of genuinely testing the claim. The observation is that people systematically move their eyes while they're talking. Sometimes they move them up, sometimes they move them to the side, sometimes they move them down. And in the NLP model, we pretend that what goes on inside people's brains is they make pictures, they talk to themselves, they hear sounds. They basically have an inner sensory life in the five senses that corresponds to the same five senses that you use on the outside. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there is since, since NLP was developed in the 1970s, there's been a lot of research that shows that's probably even accurate in terms of what's really going on. Because they found that if you have somebody visualize moving a muscle, all of the same neurons fire in their brain, except for the very final neurons that actually activate the, the, your limb moving or whatever. Mm -hmm. But so what the eye movement model in NLP says is it says when you are constructing visual images, your eyes move one direction. When you're remembering visual images, your eyes move another direction. When you are imagining sounds you've never heard before, your eyes move in a third direction. Mm -hmm. When you are remembering sounds you've heard before, your eyes move in a fourth direction. When you are talking to yourself and engaging in internal dialogue, your eyes move in a fifth direction. And when you are, are experiencing your feelings very strongly, your eyes move in a sixth direction. So there's three directions on each side. There's three to the left and three to the right. And they may be different for different people. On some people, especially left-handed people, one or more of them might be swapped left to right. But the NLP model says that if somebody, that when somebody is retrieving information, when they're really involved in information processing, their eyes will move in a particular direction that corresponds to the type of processing they're doing. Mm -hmm. You can then use that to help choose an intervention to decide what to do with them to help them change their thinking if what you're doing is trying to help someone change their thinking. Because NLP, the first place it was really used extensively, and in fact where it was developed, was in the realm of therapy. So people would come in and they would say, I have this horrible phobia. And by watching their eyes, one of the things that you could find out is every time they talked about the thing they had that was a phobic trigger, they would always move their eyes to visual memory or to the direction that corresponded to visual memory. If that's what happened, there is a particular technique that was developed in NLP that says when somebody is having a phobic reaction and it is instantaneous and it involves a remembered visual image, use this technique and it will help get rid of the phobia. And you then could use that technique and it would help get rid of the phobia. And, you know, like all things, there's plenty of margin for error. Some things don't work all the time. Some things, sometimes you misdiagnose, etc. That's the NLP eye movement model. The way that people have misinterpreted this is to mean, gee, if you ask someone a question and their eyes move to the creating a visual image area, that means they're lying. Well, yeah. maybe. It may mean that they're remembering something and they're creating an image that they've never made before. 
that's based upon the thing they're remembering. It may mean they're not paying any attention to your question. Instead, they're making an image of the delicious... <laughs> Daydreaming about something more interesting. <laughs> they're, they're making an image of the delicious casserole they plan on making just as soon as they can get out of that, you know, out of the job interview or whatever. And this is the problem with a lot of NLP. Number one, the term is not copyrighted or trademarked, so anyone can claim they're teaching it and anyone can claim they're good at it. And number two, an awful lot of people do. And they have no idea what it really is or how it works. Well, now, if we want to read a book or two or three to get some useful understanding that is applicable, what would be your top recommendations on that? Oh, that's so difficult because I don't think there are very many good NLP books out there. Um, my favorite one is called Using Your Brain for a Change by a man named Richard Bandler, who is one of the mm -hmm. co-developers of NLP. I happen to, the impression I get is he was really, really the principal key to the whole thing. And it is a book about how different changes in your mental imagery affect the reactions that you have to those mental images. And the reason this matters is that a lot of our behavior is driven off of our mental imagery. So let's say that somebody says, hey, we're going to raise your tax rates, and you get super upset at that. Well, you're not actually getting upset at the words we will right. raise your tax rates, you're getting upset at what that means to you. Mm -hmm. And it may be that what happens is you make a mental image of yourself lying in a gutter surrounded uh -huh. by really bad liquor, you know, with people stepping over your body because you think that if your tax rates get raised, that's what's going to end up happening to you. And what you then are reacting to is that image that you're making. Okay. Well, that's helpful. So using your brain for a change teaches you to identify the images that are actually driving your behavior and give some specific techniques for how to manipulate those images and change them so that they drive your behavior differently. Because if you took that exact same image of yourself lying in the gutter with the cheap liquor and you put circus music behind it, it wouldn't produce the same emotional reaction. Understood. You, it, may not, it may not make you want to be there, but it, it's not going to be this horrible tragedy. But on the other hand, if you put these strings and violins just doing this slow, mournful thing, well, that makes it worse, you know, <laughs> etc. Understood. Now, you know, and people go, oh, that's just a funny little mental trick. And I'm like, yes, it's a funny little mental trick that completely changes the way that you feel about something. Wouldn't, isn't that useful? <laughs> like, like if you can just do a funny little mental trick and suddenly this thing that has been causing you incredible stress and high blood pressure and anger suddenly becomes funny, like that sounds like a mental trick worth learning and doing more of. Well said. And so the thing about NLP to me, number one, very few people who claim to understand it really understand it very well. Number two, they often misrepresent it as a thing that accomplishes a certain result, like being a lie detector or persuading people of things. And it's less about getting a specific result, and it's more about when you're dealing with people, how do you understand the way they communicate? How do you understand the way they think? And how can you communicate to them so that you can be most understood by them? And if they want change, and if they want you to tell them how to change their behavior so they get better results in their life, how can you package the communication about how they can change such that Number one, they can hear it and understand it. Number two, they can then turn that understanding into different behavior. And then number three, how can you make sure that the behavior you're telling them to do, like in this case, the circus music, is actually the thing that will make a difference for them? Because for some people, circus music may not make something silly. For some people, circus music may make it ominous because maybe they saw too many clown films as a kid, you know, or whatever. But once you know 
for a given person, how they think, which things are meaningful for them, what their language is, you can help them reach the results that they want by using NLP to understand all of those things. I, I, have, has this been clear? I've... Oh, oh, yes, thank you. Sure. Steve, or tell me if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Uh, with me, you mean? That's right. With me, I'm at steverrobbins.com, S-T-E-V-E-R-R-O-B-B-I-N-S.com. Get It Done Groups are at getitdonegroups.com. And if you are interested in the podcast, which is the Get It Done Guys, Quick and Dirty Tips to Work Less and Do More, which is way too long. It should just be called <laughs> the Get It Done Guy, or it should be called Work Less and Do More. Go to iTunes.com forward slash Get It Done Guy, or search for Get It Done Guy on any place that you listen to podcasts. I love how just immensely practical Stever was with what he had to share with regard to micro skills, because it sure makes sense that as knowledge workers, we're spending a boatload of time reading stuff, as well as a boatload of time typing stuff. Therefore, if there are any two skills that are going to save you a ton of time, it would be reading faster and typing faster. That just makes total sense when you lay it out that way. So I hope that you are taking that to heart and, and thinking through where are your biggest opportunities for speeding up. If you've already done the, the speed reading and the fast typing, you may need to look elsewhere for where you're spending a ton of time. But most likely, I think those will apply to, to many of us. So push it a little bit, see how it feels, and see just how fast you could fly on both of those dimensions. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links as we've referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep440. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. It's Ruth Sukup. She's talking about doing it scared, how to identify what is your fear archetype and overcome it so that you can achieve more and, and push through those kinds of limitations. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.